millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. My name is Gavriel Hakohen. I'm here with my BFF and co-host, IFB cult survivor, cult expert, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing today, Sadie? Oh, I'm just doing fantastic. <laughs> I know that that's not actually true because... Um, my I've got some life stressors going on right now. But that's okay because I am talking about an episode or an episode topic that I'm extremely excited to talk about today. Sadie, do you want to introduce the topic that we're going to be talking about today? So today we are talking about a book that has been mentioned so many different times on this podcast, which is The Wizard of God, My Life with Jack Hiles by Victor Nischik. This book is kind of the holy grail of the Hiles saga. We've talked about Fundamental Seduction by Voyle Glover, which is an outsider's perspective, a First Baptist Church of Hammond member's perspective on the different scandals that happened in that church in the 1980s. This book is an insider's view. It is written by the husband of the woman who Jack Hiles allegedly had an affair with, and there are tons of little details and huge surprises that are so much fun to talk about. This book is incredibly hard to find in print, but we were finally able to get our hands on a copy, and I'm so excited to let you know what's in there. This is a really exciting episode for us because this is one that, I mean, if we could have done this way back two years ago, we would have done this two years ago, but we just didn't have a copy of this book because it's it's so hard to get it, to get your hands on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
but before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat the cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there are numerous things that you can do to support us. Easiest thing is you can hit that like, that follow, that subscribe button uh, wherever you get your podcast. You can share the podcast with your friends, your family, your coworkers, anyone you think might enjoy it. If you just can't wait until Monday to get the new episode, you can subscribe to our Patreon where you will get an extended, uh, a, a much longer and uncensored and ad-free version of most of our episodes and it also comes out a day early if you subscribe to the patreon so that's super cool and you can find the patreon at patreon.com slash leaving eden podcast you can join our facebook group which is facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus you can join our subreddit which is reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus this is our last episode in the month of may and so uh, as we know next month is is june which is also pride month and we have some episodes coming out for pride month that we just really love to preview for you guys the the one that we're coming out a week from today is going to be a deep dive into the westboro baptist church this one's really exciting to both of us yeah this is a topic you know for pride month we like to do our best to mix happy topics and less happy fun topics because i like the message of pride month being a celebration but it also pride month is a protest so we like to try to show both sides of that when we do our pride month episodes so this time we're starting off with one of the most well-known anti-lgbtq hate groups in the united states and um i, I don't know i think that one's going to be really interesting the week after that is definitely not hate content, though. Not at all. More like love content. More like uh, 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 very inspirational, very uplifting. Because um, if you guys, uh, like me, are fans of the Netflix show Queer Eye, we got one of the heroes from uh, Queer Eye to come and be a guest on our podcast. His name is Pastor Noah Hepler. He's a pastor in, in Fishtown in Philadelphia. He was raised fundamentalist and now he runs, he, he is a gay man. He was raised in fundamentalism and now he runs a queer affirming ministry in Philadelphia. And we thought that he would be an excellent guest to have on our show. And we're really excited to bring that interview to you guys. And that's going to come out two weeks from today. But between uh, those two episodes, there's something that's coming out that we really just kind of can't ignore. No doubt, if you listen to the show, you probably saw the preview for the Amazon documentary about the Duggars. Yeah, the the documentary Shiny Happy People that's coming out on Amazon Prime. Yeah, so that's coming out June 2nd. Um, and we're going to, and th that's a Friday, and we're going to try to watch that whole documentary, uh, like all of it over the weekend, um, and then try to come out with a special episode probably by the the eighth 
or the ninth or, or whenever it is a week from when that comes out. But we're going to try to come out with that on Thursday or Friday of the following week. And that's, uh, I, 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 you know, that's something if that's coming out, we just have to talk about it and we just have to do that. And we may be able to have a little treat for our listeners as far as someone connected with the documentary. We'll let you know more as we're able to. Yeah, we, we can't talk about that right now. Um, so that's a little preview of what's coming up. Obviously, for Pride Month, uh, it's a bit too late now to send in your Pride stories for us to get them on an episode. But we want to say thank you to everyone who did send your Pride stories in. And we have a good number of them. So we're going to be reading those out. Uh, through the month of june really excited to do that and of course we're going to be bringing back dinah house fire it wouldn't be pride month without dinah house fire and and uh and wholesome drag content would it no but also at this at this stage in our friendship it wouldn't be every day of my life without the like four different group chats that i am in with dinah <laughs> and also i don't know if the content's going to be that wholesome <laughs> the one uh, the one with with me <clears throat> me and dinah and you that that group chat is not typically wholesome oh not at all it's uh it's atrocious <laughs> anyway if, if, before we get into the episode all we have to do now is thank our faith promise mission and i gave it all to your patrons want to say thank you to the two i gave it all to your patrons kathleen moncrief and melissa mosley the thank you, you so much to Kathleen and Melissa. Thank you so much. Our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, your names are Alex P., Alex Todd, Alicia Guild, Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Ashley Doxtator, Brooke Tolly, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen the Musical, Dora J. Is Dora J. new? Believe so. Welcome, Dora. Dora J, thank you so much for joining. Much love to you. Eleanor Donahue, uh, Emery Fairlosser, Enchanted Fairy, Esther M, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Here's a Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Henwood, Kay Turwee, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Scooby Sleuth, Stephanie Johnson, Susie, Tara McNamara, Tiffany Enderby, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you guys so much for being members of our Faith Promise Missions, and I gave it all to you of our Patreon. And thanks to all of our supporters over on Patreon. We have a good time over there, and we're really appreciative of your support to help us keep doing what we do. Yeah, it's it's really, truly incredible. Thank you guys so much. Sadie, do you want to just give us the TW, and then we'll get into the episode? Sure thing. So in general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid graphic detail or unnecessary description of these topics 
unless description is really relevant to the story that we're telling. And if we are going to go into that kind of detail, we do our best to give the audience a heads up before we do so. This episode will really focus on cult control and spiritual abuse, and it does get very deep into one particular marriage and the power struggles therein and how Jack Hiles inappropriately inserted himself into those power struggles. Uh, I don't think there's any other particular trigger warnings we need to disclose at the beginning. So anyway, into the episode. If you haven't yet, uh, I guess may, this is going to deal heavily in content uh, dealing with uh, parts one to three of our five-part first family of fundamentalism series that we came out with in the fall of 2020. Uh, we're going to be referencing a lot of events that happened in those episodes, but in case uh, it's either you haven't listened to those yet or you're just kind of like, you just need a little bit of a refresher. Uh, here's a little bit of a refresher for you. Jack Hiles was a Texan Baptist pastor who moved with his wife, Beverly, from Texas to Hammond, Indiana in uh, 1958 to take over as pastor for First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. Under Hiles' leadership, the church went from being part of the American Baptist uh, Convention uh, denomination to being independent fundamental baptist so they would have zero oversight uh, from any denomination from any denominational governing body throughout the 1960s as american culture shifted to become more liberal jack hiles preached greater and greater adherence to stricter and stricter rules these rules included how church members were allowed to dress where they could or couldn't work what music they were and weren't allowed to listen to wives submitting to husbands children submitting to their fathers and what relationships and marriages had to be like he demanded greater and greater levels of devotion and financial contribution uh as well as time commitment from the members of the church and through exploiting the labor of church members, Jack Hiles was able to grow First Baptist Church of Hammond into a megachurch. And uh, through his bus ministry, he was able to get the Sunday school at First Baptist Church of Hammond certified as the world's largest Sunday school. We've covered in a lot of detail how Hiles founded a Christian school system and a college to train people up in his own ways as well as the national conferences that he held and the other ways that he influenced the IFB movement. I don't call a lot of individual IFB pastors cult leaders, although I'm usually pretty quick to call them cult members. I tend to leave the classification of cult leader to people who actually belonged to their individual congregations and would know the facts of that better than I do. But Hiles was absolutely a cult leader and he cultivated a group of people who followed not only ifb teachings and not only his teachings but who followed him as a person and i want to explain why i would say that he founded a cult built around himself hiles had a very particular way of making his own praise a currency and enforcing his will on other people in a way that was very absolute, but did not immediately feel oppressive until you were in too deep. So if Hiles liked you, he was generous with his money and his praise. 
As far as money, he was well known for giving people money for housing or new cars, and he would get that money from selling his many books and cassette tapes. But what was a lot more valuable than his money was his power. We talked about the Falwell family uh, two weeks ago and three weeks ago and their wealth and how they amassed it and their lifestyle that is one of true wealth. Hiles, on the other hand, lived in a nice house and he wore nice suits and got nice gifts and drove a new car, but he preferred Buicks. That was what he bought when he got a brand new car. He didn't live in wealth, anything like the Falwells. What he did have, rather than ostentatious wealth that you could see, was a massive amount of power over his congregation and the ability to share that power or delegate little bits of it to others. Hiles was obsessed with loyalty. He preached on loyalty often. He even tested the loyalty of one of his assistant pastors by having him drink something that appeared to be deadly poison in front of the entire congregation. Public nature and the dramatic nature of the poison test were exceptional, unusual, but the idea of loyalty tests, of everything being a test, the idea of it being okay for Hiles to demand unquestioning loyalty and it being okay for him to check up on you behind your back to see if you were truly loyal, those ideas were baked into the culture at First Baptist Church of Hammond. So people Hiles liked, people who were useful to him, and above all, people that were loyal to him and to his power received positions of power of their own. At its peak, this was a huge congregation, and that means there were plenty of positions of power available. Assistant pastors, Sunday school teachers, the principal of the school, the president of the college, and other ranking positions at the college. Hiles not only passed out those titles, he also used his time behind the pulpit during church services to dole out praise to people who had pleased him. His praise was worth everything to the members of First Baptist Church of Hammond. It was a high honor that he knew your name or that he would mention you from the pulpit. He encouraged members to sing songs about him and throw elaborate events in his honor for his birthdays and wedding anniversaries and the anniversary of when he became pastor. He even allowed children in the schools that he founded to write homework assignments about him and to be assigned his books as reading material. So out of one side of his mouth, he would say, well, I'm nothing special. I'm just an instrument of God. Nothing about me is good or worthy. It's just God speaking through me, that sort of thing. He was carefully building a culture of inappropriate reverence for him. And inappropriate reverence is a, is a very generous way to describe it. Through the college, thousands of young preachers were infected with this inappropriate reverence for Jack Hiles. They wore Arrow brand shirts because that's what he wore. They wore Stacey Adams shoes because that was his preferred brand. Many even attempted to copy his voice and his cadence and his signature phrases. They quoted him in sermons to their congregations around the country after they graduated, and their congregations also came to know and respect and feel loyalty to Hiles through their preachers. Above all, all of these preachers trained by Hiles Anderson preached loyalty. So throughout the 70s and the 1980s, uh, while well, Hiles preached that Christians should have very strict rules about their conduct, 
he was not living to these standards himself. Hiles allegedly carried on a decades-long affair with Jenny Nischik, who worked for the publishing company he had set up to publish his books. Nischik was also married at the time, and when her husband, Victor, came forward with allegations that Jack Hiles had been ruining his marriage, there was a huge scandal uh, with Hiles denying everything. Additionally, Hiles' son, David, who was next in line to take over his father's ministry, was very credibly accused of sexually abusing minors, with uh, carrying on affairs with members of First Baptist Church of Hammond, as well as uh, Miller Road Baptist Church in Texas, and also being nefariously involved with the death of his stepson. Um, these scandals came to a head in all in about 1989-1990, and throughout the 1990s, the influence of fundamentalism in America dwindled, but the membership of First Baptist Church of Hammond re uh, remained relatively stable under Hiles after, I guess, the people who left following these scandals were left and that that were going to leave they left and then after that it was relatively stable under hiles until he died in 2001 and the pastorship of first baptist church of hammond passed to his son-in-law uh, jack scop it's important to point out that this loyalty to hiles extended far beyond his death not all ifb churches were associated with jack hiles to begin with and then many more disassociated with him after the events that coffee was just talking about but those that remained associated with him at the time of his death still practiced the kind of loyalty that i was talking about earlier even hyle's opinions on non-scriptural matters were taken very seriously in these kinds of churches even years after his death if you want an example of the kind of like the way hyle's did it was the right way like the obsessive obsession with that like the ifb kind of lost their or the hiles branch of the ifb kind of lost their when jack scop decided to put a coffee shop in their church because that's not something that jack hiles did and therefore he right. can't do it well also if you remember scop's king james version controversy if you ever read some of like the letters from Russell Anderson and other IFB leaders that called him out over that whole thing, the gist of most of those letters is you've brought shame to the name of Jack Hiles by saying these things while pastoring his church, and he would never have agreed with you, and he would kick you out if he were still alive. R.I.P. Russell Anderson. Not really. He was a creep. And that's another, <laughs> another story for another time. It's confirmed he was a creep. Uh, that's Ugh. all I got to say about that. Uh. So I grew up in one of these Hiles camp churches. Jack Hiles died when I was seven and a couple days, actually it was a couple days before my eighth birthday. I remember my dad was the school principal at the time and he actually pulled me aside before assembly to tell me that Hiles had died before he told all the other school kids. And I remember that moment being genuinely as emotionally distressing as my grandmother's death had been shortly before. I think this story might help illustrate just how big of a deal Hiles was to me. So I was seven. I grew up poor, but my family made a really big deal out of birthdays. And he died on February 6th, so right before my birthday. Hiles was so loved that they had to hold two funerals for him. So they had a funeral for the out-of-town people, like former college students, on Friday, February 9th. And then they had a second funeral for current First Baptist members 
on Saturday, February 10th. And from what I hear, both were not only completely at capacity in the main auditorium, but also filled the fellowship hall and other overflow areas. Uh, my parents wanted to go to the Friday funeral for out-of-town people, but that meant that they would be driving home on my birthday. I think they made a really good parenting move here, like all circumstances considered. They asked me what I wanted them to do. They fully assured me that they would not be upset if I asked them to stay home and they would stay at home with me for my birthday. But if it was really okay with me, they would like to go. Not only did I insist that they go to this funeral, but I begged them to take the, to take me with them. I think it's wild that you wanted to skip your eighth birthday so that you could go to a pastor's funeral. Yes. That's wild. So my parents ended up, they didn't want to take me out of school for two days, so they ended up going by themselves with my full permission. Uh, but I was fully ready to go to a funeral instead of having an eighth birthday. That is the kind of power that Jack Hiles had in this subset of Christian fundamentalism. Yeah, I mean, like, your parents were fully in that 100% for Hiles camp. Like, your dad made a documentary film for him. Yeah. So... It was around this same age, maybe a little before Hiles died or a little after he died, that I started hearing little pieces of adult conversations that I was not supposed to hear about Dave Hiles and his alleged crimes and wrongdoings and assorted felonies. And it was just little whispers, not even close to enough for me to guess what the story was, but I definitely remember knowing that there was something up with Dave. And then when Jack Hiles died, I got confirmation that there was something wrong with his <clears throat> his only son, Dave, because Dave didn't end up becoming pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond. And I knew that if a well-known pastor who had a large church had a son who was in the ministry, it was really unusual for that son not to take his church. What I did know a whole lot more about was the, as it's called, the Battle of 1989. My dad was there for this battle, and he told his <laughs> metaphorical war stories about this time. So I want to explain this to you the way that I understood it as a little kid. In 1989, just four years before I was born into the membership of First Baptist Church of Hammond, some evil men who hated fundamentalism and wanted to destroy Jack Hiles' ministry said some awful things about him. They hated him so much that they made up these stories and published them in newspapers, and some people believed these stories and didn't love Jack Hiles anymore. But we know that these stories aren't true, and we are loyal to Jack Hiles, which is why my dad wrote letters to support him and helped organize other people to fight these terrible lies made up by evil men. Big L for David Bryant Carpenter. <laughs> R.I.P. to the goat. Actually, R.I.P. <laughs> To him because we do love him yeah true that big l but it does show that people have capacity to grow in their lives um no seriously he's a good example even when he's a bad example he's he's really amazing we were hanging out with him and he would tell us stories about just like loony stuff that jack hiles would do and he would kind of make fun of himself for being like i mm -hmm. don't know how i didn't see this like yeah you also have to remember in yeah. 1989 actually in 1989 my dad turned 30 and the allegations came out in like late April, early May of 1989. So that was actually before his 30th birthday. 
So we are now both older than he was when this was going down. If that That's helps. That's really interesting. I think that really helps put it in perspective because he was 23, if my math is right, when he went to Hiles Anderson. Yeah, I just turned 24. And what what 24-year-old, <laughs> like everybody that I know who has ever been 24 has worked for a bad job or like worked for Cutco for a while or <laughs> made a bad real estate choice or like ended up in a bad apartment contract that they couldn't get out of, ended up in a bad relationship that they couldn't get out of. 24-year-olds make mistakes. So it makes, I think that puts it in so much perspective, like how that happened. That really does put it in perspective because I keep forgetting that your parents are like eight to 10 years younger than mine. Yeah. And so. So this story, the battle of 1989 was just a part of my culture growing up. It was the kind of thing, I guess a kid who didn't listen much during church, wasn't really interested in church, would not have known. But I was a kid who was so bought into fundamentalism that I wanted to spend my eighth birthday at a two-hour funeral for a guy that I had only met about five or six times. So I listened during church because I was afraid if I didn't listen during church, I might get struck with lightning. And I really internalized this story. This was crucial cultural context for my life. So it was about 12 years later after Heil's death that my world, my daily life was turned upside down by Jack Scop and his crimes. I was already on a very slow and winding path in the general direction of doubting the IFB. And I like to think I would have gone that way anyway, but Jack Scop really put the whole thing into overdrive. One of the first things I felt like I needed to find out about when I felt okay having some doubts was the Battle of 1989. For the first time in my life, I felt like I had the courage to see what these awful lies that evil men had told about Jack Hiles were. And when I finally got the courage to go to Google and hit enter, the first thing I found was the Biblical Evangelist article. So I think this Biblical Evangelist article, because this was the one that really like set off the, 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 the scandal. I think the biblical evangelist article was the second thing you ever had me read about the IFB. The first thing you had me read was the Chicago magazine article about uh, the Scop scandal, mm -hmm. but that article referenced the Heil scandals. And then you sent me the biblical evangelist article. Yeah. I think I read the biblical evangelist article first myself, but it's, it's a little hard to remember because believe it or not, this has been 10 years ago this summer. <laughs> To my great surprise, the Biblical Evangelist article didn't seem like a lot of lies made up by evil men who hated fundamentalism. The evidence that it presented was enough to put a big question mark in my mind. It wasn't nearly enough to overcome the literal 20 years of brainwashing, but it was enough for me to look for more information, look for more evidence. As a sidebar, the guilt of looking into this at all was horrible. I was on some level afraid that God would punish me for reading horrible lies about a man of God, but I also felt like I was betraying Jack Hiles on a personal level. But as I was reading everything I could get my hands on and telling absolutely nobody about it, <laughs> I started hearing about two books. One of them was Fundamental Seduction, and the other was The Wizard of God, My Life with Jack Hiles. 
by Vic Nischik. And Vic Nischik is the husband of the woman with whom Jack Hiles carried on a decades-long affair. So both of these books were published in the very early 90s as additional evidence, kind of supplementary to the Biblical Evangelist article, and both were extremely hard to find. So these books were published in very small batches, and it was 30 years ago, and it was like a local, they weren't nationally published, nothing like that. So they were not that easy to get 30 years ago. But I personally believe that the staff members of First Baptist Church of Hammond were paid to go to stores and buy and destroy as many copies as they could find. And I don't have direct evidence for that. It's just what I personally believe. But these books are incredibly rare. And at the time I was starting to look into this, you could sometimes find a copy of one of these books on eBay or Amazon for anywhere between $150-$200 or as high as $700. So this has been a lot of background on why this book is important and why it was important to me, but I think it's important to understand why the publication of this book was such a big deal, but I also want our listeners to understand why I tracked this book for close to a decade before I finally got my hands on a copy. I almost spent $700 on it one time, like around 2015, 2016, somewhere. I can't even say I'm glad wow. I didn't do it. <laughs> if That's I had so much I did, money. Uh, it was my rent at the time. <laughs> so I'm going to circle back to this at the end. But I felt like I needed hard evidence. I needed something that I could hold in my hands rather than see on a computer screen or a phone screen that would tell me that I wasn't crazy. I wasn't making things up. What I experienced in the IFB was real and that there it was possible to know the truth behind these Hiles allegations. So thanks for that intro to what this book really is. Um, let's. I just needed people to yeah. understand like why this was once worth $700 to me. No, this is, uh, th that's really important though, because this is like the holy grail of IFB yeah. expose books. So let's get to the, let's get to the actual content of this book. Um, yeah, there's, there's like so much new, tiny little new details. So I'm skipping over the first few chapters. They talk about Vic's early childhood. He was born in Ukraine. He was a little kid when World War II was happening. And then his family got to come to the U.S. when he was a preteen. It's, it's the flavor of it is kind of, this is how God saved me from having to grow up somewhere that wasn't America. And then God brought me to America, which is the greatest country. Like that's the flavor. The one really interesting thing in this section relates to the Nischik's First Baptist Church of Hammond pedigree, like how they ended up there. Vic Nischik and Johnny Colston served together in the military. And when they were together in the military, Johnny Colston was already dating his future wife, Elaine, who would later become the organist and <clears throat> puppet master at First Baptist Church of Hammond. And Jenny Nischik, Jenny Coral at the time, was Elaine's roommate. So they started like double dating. I knew that the Colstons and the Nischiks went way back. I did not know that they knew each other before they all ended up at First Baptist Church of Hammond, and that makes so much more sense on why the story played out the way that it did. Okay, another tiny detail that I didn't know was 
uh, that Jack Hiles performed Vic and Jenny's wedding ceremony. Dude. Dude. Like, Jack Scott also notably sexually harassed a woman in marriage counseling when he had previously performed her wedding ceremony. So it's not like this is the only time it's happened. But like, mm. how how can you as a minister yeah i have i have friends who were ordained through the church of the Fl flying spaghetti monster to perform weddings and they take their ordination more seriously than this man also though this is the ifb so sexual harassment is just kind of part of the deal it's like yeah i am just seriously saying i know people who were ordained through like you you or church of the flying spaghetti monster or what have you so that they can do weddings for their friends and all of those people take their ordination more seriously than this. So Nischik is talking about like how they got to First Baptist Hammond and their early days there. We get two really interesting illustrations of the magical thinking of the IFB. So we talked about Peter Ruckman like opening the Bible and pointing to a verse and then that verse tells him what he needs to hear. This is two more stories that are kind of about the same thing. So Victor and Jenny were thinking about moving to Hammond permanently. She wanted to move there, but he didn't. So he was driving and they were having this discussion and he asked God to show him a sign. And the next red light that they were stopped on was Hiles Street, but it was spelled H-I-L-E-S, not H-Y-L-E-S like Jack Hiles. So he said, oh, that's not a sign from God. I need another sign from God. And then the next street that they stopped on at a red light was called Sibley Street, which is the street, the, the name of the street that the church is on. And then the next thing that they saw at a red light was a place called Stevens Furniture Store. And a lady named Mrs. Stevens had said that she was praying for them to come to Hammond. So that's how he got uh, signs from God that they needed to move to Hammond. This is, that is such confirmation bias though. That is like. Yeah. And it's also the thing, like if I don't want to do something, then that probably means God wants me to do it. Nischik also tells a story about how Jack Hiles, before he became pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond, had been invited to come candidate at the church and see if he would be a good fit two different times and said no both times. And the pulpit committee asked him to pray about it. And then he went on a road trip and he saw a sign in Hammond, Louisiana that says Hammond welcomes you. And then later he was on another road trip traveling and preaching and he fell asleep at the wheel and almost hit a semi. But like as he woke up and avoided the accident, he noticed that the semi had come from Hammond, Indiana. And based on those signs, Hiles accepted an invitation to go preach at First Baptist Church of Hammond, and the rest is history. Uh, Jack Hiles, you shouldn't be driving if you're going to fall asleep at the wheel. You should pull over and take a nap. You're a threat to yourself and others if you're on the road in that condition. This is deeply irresponsible, and I don't think we should have people who are that irresponsible as people who are in charge of our congregations and as our leaders. You know True. what I'm saying? Yes. Um, so fun fact, driving when severely sleepy, severely tired is actually a greater level of impairment than driving over the legal alcohol limit, it's according true. to the CDC. In most people, with most people, like average metabolism, 24 hours of being awake is equivalent to a breathalyzer test of 0.10 
which is over the limit in every single state. That's crazy. You can't you can't be doing that, Jack Hiles. You can't be Don't driving. Don't do that. Like if you like, and also falling asleep at the wheel, that means you're going to get in a crash for sure. That's not yeah. just like, oh, I'm drunk and I'm not paying attention to things that that's like my car is going to hit something because I'm not going to move it out of the way. Yeah. Because but, I don't, like, don't drive drunk like, either. Obviously don't do, don't do any of the, don't drive drunk. Don't drive high. Don't drive with, with impairments of any kind. Honestly, it's a bad idea. And, uh, yeah, it's protect not just yourself your and the people around you. It's not just um, your safety. It's other people's safety. Do not do that. Um, I have a quote. This is our first quote from the book. Um, more about Victor and Jenny having this discussion. Should we go to Hammond or shouldn't we? I tried to learn from Jenny what it was that attracted her and Elaine to Jack Hiles. Her only answer was that I would understand it once I was in the church for a while. She was telling me that love and loyalty to Jack Hiles was related to spiritual growth and closeness to the Lord. Wow. So they were already buying in. She was. And he was skeptical. And she's telling him, you'll get it once you're just around him for a while. I just, I think huh. this is such a clear explanation of IFB psychology and IFB beliefs. And that's just as worthwhile as the juicier details that we're going to get to. So w w was Elaine raised at First Baptist Church of Ham? Like, how did she get involved uh, with Jack Hiles? Jenny and Elaine were dating Victor and Johnny while both of the men were in the military. And Jenny and Elaine were in college. So Jenny and Elaine, after college, got teaching jobs in Hammond and like just so happened to join First Baptist Church of Hammond around the same time that Hiles became pastor. And then Elaine and Johnny got married and they moved away. And then later Vic and Jenny got married and moved away temporarily. And then Vic and Jenny moved back. And then I'm going to tell you about it later, but they were responsible for talking the Colstons into moving back. Yeah, so this is really interesting because I know... So in our first family of fundamentalism series, I, we like to point to the I gave it all moment when Jack Hiles is trying to fundraise for, was it a new church auditorium that he was fundraising for? Uh -uh, or was um, it for at Hiles Anderson College? I always heard it as uh, for buying the building for Hiles Anderson College. Okay. So he was trying to fundraise for the building to buy Hiles Anderson College and they didn't have enough money and people were dropping watches and wedding rings into the offering tray. And we usually point to that as the moment when First Baptist Church of Hammond really became a cult cult. But this book would suggest that it may have been earlier than that. If Jenny and Elaine were espousing the belief that, what, what was it that she said that closeness to Jack Hiles and loyalty to Jack Hiles was related to spiritual growth and closeness to the Lord? So if that's the case, then the, I mean, really the, it was probably a cult much before then. This is like the decade leading up to the, I gave it all moment. And Nischik is really clear in his book about how he believed that Hiles was conditioning people for that moment years before it came about. So here's a really interesting example of Hiles conditioning people for loyalty. The first time Hiles ever set an attendance goal for the church he had set a goal for 1,000 people to attend church on a certain day. Did they achieve? So, was this an achievable and like realistic goal for First Baptist to get to? Yes. But it just so happened that Vic and Jenny, both of whom were Sunday school teachers, were not at church that day. 
because they were in Kentucky talking the Colstons into coming back to First Baptist Church of Hammond. Jack Hiles reported the final count for that day as 998. Hmm. Hmm. That's a real interesting coincidence. And then he went on a huge rant in the Wednesday night service when Vic and Jenny were back, and then again in the Sunday school teachers meeting on the same night about how Sunday school teachers are never supposed to be missing services, especially when Hiles had set an attendance goal, and you shouldn't ever miss a service when there's an attendance goal. When we were talking about to train up a child with Shoshana, we had the idea that fundamentalist God sets you up to fail and then punishes you for failing. Yes. Um, Nischik says, Hiles purposely lost the attendance goal in order to win my total loyalty. And it's doubly manipulative, too, because they were out doing work for him. They were out trying to convince people to come back to First Baptist Church of Hammond, and he used their devotion as a means for an intentional failure that he could blame them for. That's wild. Right. That's like so... Nischik says that Hiles could have found those two more people, and like this was, he could have said that the total was anything, and he chose 998 to, to specifically to get at them so yeah. uh nischik talks about his schedule his bus route his soul winning all the things that he was doing for hiles one thing that stood out to me is that he said that hiles would make him set a soul winning goal or a goal for having a certain number of visitors in church and then he would announce vic's personal goal in front of the entire congregation so that there would be an element of shame if he missed his goal this wasn't something that Hiles was doing to every church member. He was doing this to men who were up and coming within the church, like trying to get to the top, trying to gain Hiles' approval. And that's evil. That's like bad sales boss stuff. Uh, he also mentions that Monday and Tuesday were the only nights that he ever got to spend at home because there was church on Wednesday, Thursday night choir practice, Friday night bus route visitation, all day Saturday bus visitation and then leave home before 7 a.m. Sunday morning and not get back until after 10 Sunday night. And during all of this time, he had a full-time job as well. I read that people become more mentally indebted to others the more they do for them rather than the other way around, which I think is it's kind of counter what you would think. Now, I like I can't remember where I read this, so I don't I can't verify whether it's true or not, but it seems like part of that concept is it play here like it's almost like sunk cost fallacy but with your time and energy and labor rather than with like actual monetary spending yeah sunk cost fallacy i believe plays a huge role in funding psych psychology i've also talked some about how i feel that all afab children in the ifb are groomed to some extent just by nature of the dress code, the compet, like you're gonna grow up and marry a man and have lots of babies, you're gonna have to have sex with him and you're gonna hate it. The sex sexualization of very young children's bodies um, by dress code. And then people who are predators within the IFB choose from that huge crop of basically pre-groomed children. They just choose who they want to prey on. I think this is sort of the same concept the Hiles would indoctrinate everyone with this idea of loyalty, get everyone to buy into the sunk cost fallacy, and then it's just a huge crop of basically pre-exploited willing workers, and the leaders can just choose who they are going to exploit further. 
So this brings us, speaking of exploitation, this brings us to late 1962 when the Hiles and this chick story really takes off. One night, Victor was at home alone. Jenny was busy on some church function or other, and Jack Hiles showed up to the Nischik house unexpectedly. He was there to ask Vic if he could offer Jenny a job on the church staff. Vic gave his permission for Jenny to take the job. A few months later, the choir director quit, and Hiles called Vic into his office. He asked Vic to take the choir director job, and Vic protested because he didn't think he was up to it. Vic asked Hiles if he could pray about it, and Hiles jokingly held up his watch and said, Sure, you can pray. I'll give you 20 seconds. Was Vic qualified to be a choir director? Somewhat. He had led a choir while in the army. But I'm sure that there were more than a few people who, I mean, First Baptist Church of Hammond was, Hiles had been growing. He'd grown it significantly. So there must have been multiple people who could have been a choir director for First Baptist Church of Hammond that were in the congregation. Why specifically did Hiles need it to be Vic Nischik? I don't know, Gavi. Why do you think Hiles wanted Nischik to be so incredibly busy that he hardly saw his wife and to be so entangled with the church and the ministry that he had complete loyalty to Hiles? So this story is just getting started. I think it would be a good time to go take up the offering, and when we get back, we can keep on working through the new revelations from this book. That sounds good. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Surviving Bob Jones University of Christian Cults is a thought-provoking podcast series that delves deeply into the history of Bob Jones University, the psychology of fundamentalism, the criteria for cults, and survivors' experiences. BJU is a controversial religious institution, and this podcast sheds light on the experiences of those who have survived this high-control environment. Please subscribe to stay updated on the premiere of this podcast, which is coming in 2023. 
We are back from our break. Uh, we are talking about the Wizard of God, Jack Hiles, Vic Nischik, Jenny Nischik. They're sort of the fair. So we're now in about 1962. Vic Nischik has taken up the responsibility of choir director and his wife, Jenny, is working at the church. At what point does Jack Hiles begin his affair with Jenny Nischik? It seems that Vic believes that the affair started sometime after the birth of their son in 1967, but before a cruise that they all went on in 1968. Uh, that 1968 date is around the time, or no, after the birth of their son is when the office next to Jack Hyle's office became vacant and Jenny was moved into that office. So he thinks around then is when it started. Do you think that Jack Hiles intentionally took advantage of a woman who was increasingly sleep who was increasingly sleep deprived on account of her being postpartum? I think that's questionable. Of course, that could be what happened, and it's a fair question. But I think we're looking deeper than that here for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jack Hiles' own baby book recommends leaving babies to cry overnight so the parents can get a full night of rest. Yikes! <laughs> yeah, that's bad. <laughs> But it also, if Hiles just wanted to have a physical affair, he just wanted to have sex with a church member, he would have had so many options. He could have had a dozen affairs, whatever he wanted. He traveled and preached all the time. He, there are a million directions you can go with that. I think he was emotionally involved with Jenny way before the birth of her son. I think it went all the way back to 1962 when he asked Vic if she could come work for the church. What, so what do you think it was about Jenny that made her so attractive to him? Because later, later, Victor claims that Hiles essentially offered his own wife, Beverly, to Nischik as sort of like a consolation prize, like we can trade wives. Yeah, that's gross. Um, but it, it's yeah. obvious to me why Hiles was attracted to Jenny. I think it was the devotion that Jenny had for him. I think if he had wanted sex he could have gotten it so much more easily in multiple different ways i don't think his primary need that he was fulfilling with her was sexual i think it was admiration and adoration and devotion and at this time uh his relationship with beverly would have soured as well and we know <laughs> this from uh their daughter linda murphy uh we we know this from her book yeah, so 1968 is when we pick up the narrative of things going badly in the Hiles marriage. I don't have reason to think that it was that bad in 1962 when Hiles asked Jenny to come work for him. So that's another reason to think that the one thing that I believe that Hiles has to say about this is that this was a friendship. And I obviously this friendship between Jenny Nischik and Jack Hiles went incredibly inappropriate directions and destroyed a family and had lasting repercussions and was a bad thing to do as a person in a position of authority, especially as a pastor. But I do tend to believe him when he says that it started with a friendship. Anyway, by 1967, the cracks in the Nischik marriage were just starting to show. The Hiles and the Nischik families hung out constantly. Vic says that they went to local basketball games, concerts, dinners, and that Hiles even asked him if he would be the legal guardian of the Hiles children if he and Beverly were to die. Well, so that is real evidence of emotional involvement. That's not yeah. like... 
But Vic wasn't seeing anything particularly weird between Hiles and his wife yet. Hiles was still able to make it seem like his deep friendship was with Vic and that Jenny was, oh yeah, Vic's wife who works for me. Vic quotes Hiles as saying, Vic, you are the greatest layman I ever pastored. I'll never forget your loyalty and support, and I will take care of you for the rest of your life. That's a bit of love bombing, though. Yes, and that it's also is. totally against the principles that both Jack and Beverly Hiles later taught in separate books. Hiles taught that there ought to be a separation between a pastor and church members. There even ought to be a separation between husband and wife. You shouldn't be emotionally intimate with anyone because God needs to be your number one emotional support. And Beverly taught that the pastor's wife must never have close friends within the church because then it will look like she's playing favorites. And this chick is legitimately Hiles' best friend at this point. Yeah. Jack Hiles, he, and he was a man who famously did not have close friends. Yes, because he said you shouldn't have close friends. Yeah. But except for this one. And so this is around the same time, 1967-68, that Hiles brought the Nis he bought the Nischik family the house on the same block where he lived. And so this is doubly manipulative because on one hand it indebts the Nischik family to both Jack Hiles and his ministry, but it also gives Hiles pretty much 24 hour access to the Nischik family whenever he wants it. Like he bought them the house. He could probably say, well, we could trade keys. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you ever get locked, like he, he, he could do that. It's like golden handcuffs. Mm -hmm. and so he can basically have 24 access our access to the Nischik family whenever he wants it. Right. And he, it, we'll get to the phone later, the, the direct line that he installed to Jenny so that he could call her any time of day. But just about immediately when they get into the house is when Jenny pulled away from Vic, like physically and emotionally. She didn't want to hug or kiss him when he came in from work. She would go into another room after dinner and not spend any time with him. Vic talked to Hiles about this and he said that he would speak with Jenny and see what was going on. One night after one of her many appointments with Hiles, Jenny came home and everything seemed okay for one night, but the next day, Vic got an urgent call from Hiles. Hiles informed him that Jenny had taken his advice and given it her all for one last try, but it was no use. Jenny was just not in love with him anymore, and there was nothing Hiles could do about it. Of course, we can only speculate what happened within between Hiles and Jenny Nischik because they both flat denied everything, and they're also both no longer living. Yeah, but knowing... <laughs> Having heard as many sermons as I have by Hiles, having read as much of his work as I have, this seems like a solution he would come up with. Like, wife tells him that she's not in love with her husband anymore. It totally tracks that Hiles would say, well, give it one more try and really try to open up your heart to him and see if you can thaw that ice. That seems like Hiles' advice to me. So anyway... It didn't work in this situation. Jenny and Victor worked out an arrangement. They would stay married, but no affection would be shown between them. She would keep up the house. He would work for money, but no Christmas gifts, no birthday gifts, no I loves you, no I love you is anything like that. Jenny said, I have become totally mm. absorbed in the ministry of Jack Hiles and there is no room in my heart for any other love. That's really sad. 
-hmm. that's also really unfundy because as we've talked about on this show fundamentalists and we i mean we've read so many books on fundamentalist marriage and we've heard so many people talk about fundamentalist marriage like they really promote wives fully submitting to their husbands and women are told to never ever 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 even let anybody know that they're even the slightest bit unhappy because that's rebelliousness or that's a negative spirit and the negative spirit is not of god funny marriage advice is always you must have sex with your husband every 72 hours or his brain will not be able to function and his nuts will explode and that's only like a tiny bit of hyperbole but the like funny marriage advice is that if you are not happy in your marriage then you read your bible and you pray and that gives you the strength to find happiness or the strength to just grit your teeth and get through it mm -hmm. <clears throat> until you die Unless Jack Hiles tells you to do something completely contrary to everything else he's ever said, in which case you do that. Victor thought back to something that had happened several years previous when Jenny had told him that Hiles came into her office at work and asked her to be his best friend. He told her mm. at that time that she was his inspiration in the ministry. She told Hiles that she would only agree to be his best friend if it wouldn't interfere with his relationship with his wife. And she went straight home and told her husband about the conversation. So. Uh, as we found out from Linda Murphy's book, that that's not what happened because right? we know that <clears throat> we know that Beverly left Jack Hiles for an extended period of time. Right. We know that this affected the Hiles marriage. Jack Hiles was, was a, just incredibly involved with this whole arrangement of the Nischik house as well. Uh, he made an entire schedule for Vic where like, he would know when he could come home and there could be the least amount of interaction between Vic and Jenny. But Hiles said, well, we need you to stay married for the sake of the ministry. Hiles is so far up in their business around all of this. In 1968, the staff went on a cruise to the Bahamas. The Nischicks and the Hiles were always seated at the same dinner table, which ended up leaving Beverly and Vic sitting awkwardly at the table by themselves for a lot of meals because Jenny and Jack had planning meetings for cruise activities. Mm. One night, Jenny and Jack got into some kind of disagreement at the dinner table, which led to Jenny storming off and Hiles going after her to calm her down, and neither Jenny nor Jack Hiles returning to their cabins until the next morning. At this time, was there any rumors, uh, like throughout First Baptist Church, that the Nischik's marriage was on the rocks? To an outside observer, I don't think so, because Hiles had so much control and power and authority that he could set them up perfectly to appear as if everything was normal. And of course, Hiles had also taught his people not to gossip. So if anyone did notice anything, they would not be trying to spread it if they were really bought into Hiles' teachings. Yeah, it's just a double state because Hiles operated his ministry for years on the back. Like he had informants, he had people whose job it was to basically snitch on everybody else. And that's how he kept people in line was to was to keep people controlled by basically just a chain of of gossip that goes upwards. But if there's gossip that is about people at the top, that's absolutely not allowed. It's just a one way train only. Right. Because then you're being disloyal. 
you're being disloyal or you're uh, 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 speaking, uh, 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 is it libel or it's slander or I don't know what it is, but it's 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 gossip and that's not allowed. Yeah, and and you want to destroy fundamentalism because Hiles had equated his ministry to fundamentalism in general. Like we are fundamentalism, I am fundamentalism. And we are the last hope for America to be a godly nation. And I am the last hope for America to be a godly nation. So if you attack someone who's crucial to the Hiles ministry or Hiles himself, you are attacking fundamentalism or you are attacking America. And if somebody sins and somebody does something wrong, oh, well, King David sinned and he was still a great king and you have to forgive him. Right, and we have to forgive them for the sake of fundamentalism and for the sake of America. Around the time of this cruise, short and shortly after, we know that Beverly was privately accusing Jack Hiles of having had an affair. Vic wasn't sure. He knew there was something clearly going on between Hiles and his wife, but he wasn't sure whether they were actually having sex with each other. Until one Wednesday night, right before church, Jenny had already left the house and Victor was on his way out the door when he found a stack of letters. And I want to directly quote this, even though it's a little bit gross. Mm. Just like, <laughs> if you were raised to see Jack Hiles as like this benevolent, righteous grandpa, this is, this is going to squick you out a little bit. But this is a quote from page 57 and 58 of Wizard of God. These were passionate love notes from Jack Hiles to Jenny all signed your aching guy jack your aching guy jack <laughs> moving on <laughs> they expressed undying love telling jenny that she was the only woman he loved he thanked her for having lunch with him in his study selecting and buying his suits for him and doing his laundry there was reference to secret meetings with him in different places that is pretty gross just is, his signature just like I've read it literally a hundred times and I can't, still can't handle it. What happened to these notes? That's one of the great mysteries of the ages. Uh, Nischik says that he took several photocopies, but as far as I know, they've never resurfaced. Like there are people who said, who say that they've seen them, but I've, I've never been able to see uh, one of these photocopies or anything. I mean, I can only assume that if they republish this book in 2023, they'd probably publish it with the photocopies in it. But they, that was his family knows where he put them. As, yeah. But that it wasn't a thing that was probably like, yeah, common to do in books like this in 1990 or, or 89 or whatever. 90 is when this book was published. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So Hiles and this chick had counseling sessions often, actually, every Saturday night. This chick would go to Hiles' office to kind of get his instructions for the upcoming week like when he was allowed to be at home and what he was required to be at and when his whether or not he was allowed to go to his kids sports games that week or whether it was Jenny's week because Jenny did not speak to him in the home at all if they crossed paths in a hallway she would turn and face the wall until he had walked past her wow like, can you imagine in your own home can you imagine still being married to that person but that's how it used to be yeah this is yeah oh my god that's really horrible oh man i don't like um, that at all so hiles in these so he he would have these like scheduling meetings with him but also hiles like knockoff wish.com psychotherapy hiles said that he was trying to probe vic's mind to find out what he had done to make jenny fall out of love with him this mostly consisted of trying to find out if Vic was secretly gay. Um, and Hiles really tried. He really tried to shoehorn this narrative um, and just could not get Victor to admit to anything that sounded remotely gay. That's uh, honestly, that's kind of funny. A little bit. It is kind of funny because like in this world, being gay is like the big bad. And they think that they, they kind of think that anything is gay or can make you gay they're so so paranoid so it's a bit funny that hiles couldn't find even one thing about his life that would cause alarm bells to ring and it's also kind of cool of Nischik to to not be like you know his his response is a lot less homophobic than you might expect Nischik is kind of like uh, nope not gay never have been like kind like of a normal reaction that a straight man would have if he was asked if he were gay like the the I mean the the wild thing I'm thinking about like I want to know exactly what Hiles was asking Nischik about to determine whether or not he is gay. Is he like did you did you listen to a disco song on the radio? Maybe hearing a disco song on the radio turned you gay. Did you um, No, it was it was more Hiles delving into the details of every past friendship and relationship that he had ever had. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so uh, when he that's, wasn't that's worse that's yeah not... well because it's because it's badly done psychotherapy of course house doesn't know how psychotherapy actually works so he's right. just, like i'm sure that like it's so much of like the like when they do exorcisms their version of exorcisms <laughs> is literally just what they saw happen in the exorcist right and so i i get the feeling that they're 
I saw psychotherapy in a Woody Allen movie, and now that's what therapy is now. Like, right. it's, it, and, and that's what my impression of what therapy is now. And because no one at First Baptist Church of Hammond has ever been to therapy, they're like, clearly this is the right thing. It's just... So when Hiles wasn't able to get <clears throat> any remotely gay detail out of him, he switched tactics. He brought up a young woman who was a member of the church and also worked for Vic and spent extensive time, like years possibly, trying to entice Vic into having an affair with this young woman. This detail is really interesting to me because it's it's almost as if Hiles feels a little bit guilty for stealing his best friend's wife. Yeah, I think it was it was a plot to try to get Vic to cheat on Jenny so that Jenny could like have scriptural grounds for divorce and leave him. And then maybe they would plot to have something happen to Beverly and then Hiles and Jenny could just get married. Right. And he wouldn't lose his ministry. In like in Linda Murphy's book, in the first five chapters, uh, I guess she she never published a book, but the first five chapters are available and we've read them. In this book, Jack would openly berate his wife Beverly in front of their children and threaten to have her institutionalized you know, just horribly mm -hmm. abusive stuff, just emotionally and psychologically abusive stuff, as well as probably physically abusive, but we don't really get much of that. It's just, it's, it's really horrible stuff, but that might have been part of the plot that if Beverly became institutionalized, then maybe then it would have been okay for Hiles to divorce her or find some way for like some loophole through which he could dissolve their marriage somehow. I don't know. Yeah, so Hiles tried and tried to get him to run away with this girl or have sex with her. Hiles told Vic that he should give her a monthly allowance so that she'd be able to live in a nice apartment and have a nice car. And then finally, Hiles demanded that Vic go to work, go to his office, bring this girl into his office, confess that he loved her, and ask her to be his best friend. This is a quote from the book. No buts. <laughs> I know what's best for you. This is the only way that you can live with a bad home situation. Wow. Way to tell on yourself, Jack. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, asking a woman is saying, I love you. Do you want to be my best friend? That's, a, that's Jack Hiles' move. That's his move. Yeah. That's literally what he did to Jenny. And it's honestly kind of gross, right? Like a yes. grown man who has a huge career and you work for him and he has a wife, has children, has what appears to be a beautiful family and he's giving you like nasty puppy dog eyes and saying, will you be my best friend? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh. like, like, no, no, you have a wife, you're friends with my husband go be friends with my husband. I don't want to be her best friend. Yeah, but being close to Vic Nischik isn't the same as being close to Jack House. Being close to Vic Nischik doesn't, isn't proximity to the Lord. Right. In the way that... Right. I just yeah. like, I just can't, can't imagine if some dude who was also my boss said that to me. That would just squeak <sighs> me out so bad. But Victor did what Hiles told him to do. He brought this girl into work, late at night, called her to his office, and told her that he loved her. She said, good night, and walked out. Good on her. Yeah, like, she she wanted no part of this 
Hiles was furious that this didn't work. Vic said that he berated him verbally, that Hiles said that he had a, quote, computer mind, incapable of love and affection. He told Damn. me that when it came to women, I had no sense and that I was a common loser. No wonder Jenny won't have anything to do with you. Wow. That's brutal. That's cold. Yeah. Also, what, what's ironic about this is that like this claim that Vic had come onto a woman at his place of work and asked her to run away with him. Right. Was, that was a pillar of Jack Hiles' eventual response to the Biblical Evangelist article. Right, because Hiles insinuated that he was either gay and or had had this, had tried to run away and have an affair with this woman at his workplace when Hiles set it all up to begin with. And then Jenny came to Vic and accused him of having an affair with this young woman and told him that she was filing for divorce because now she had scriptural grounds for divorce. But there's no way that she would have known that unless Jack Hiles told her that her husband was having an affair. Exactly. It's, the whole thing. It's a series uh, of failed setups. And Hiles is orchestrating it all, but not doing a super great job. It's truly farcical. Then this is why he called his book The Wizard of God, because he saw this as like a view behind the curtain of the power and prestige that Hiles had. So finally, Hiles came over to counsel with the Nischicks about the divorce, and everybody here is still pretending that nothing weird is going on between Hiles and Jenny. So Hiles said basically, you know what, Vic, it's best for you to leave before your kids are older because they'll be traumatized if you divorce when they're older, but they're little kids now. They won't know the difference. You just move to another town, let it go, and everybody will be fine. <clears throat> the kids are like seven and five at the time. And Vic was like, hell no, dude. I have photocopies of all of the love letters that you wrote my wife. I have them stored in secure locations. And you can't make that, you can't make her love me again, but you also cannot run me out of town. Because if you run me out of town, everybody is going to see those letters because you put me in charge of the pastor school mailing list and I have addresses for 15,000 Baptist preachers. Wow. This is an entire story about Vic District slowly growing a spine and it's really fun. But also, like, I mean, just major L's along the way from Vic Nischik. Oh, man. So, I, I don't know. I can't imagine, like, after he read the love letters the first time, he was still going to Hiles for advice, which is the, the weirdest thing for me. So, he had himself, <sighs> he had kind of, like, rationalized all of this as, like, maybe they're not maybe they are just best friends and it's like inappropriate but it's not adultery or maybe jack and then after he read the 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 letters and he was convinced that they were actually committing adultery he rationalized it as if i bust the story open hiles is going to lose his ministry and all of those millions of people who would have gotten saved because of jack hiles might not get saved so it's kind of for the good of humanity i have to suffer through this and not expose this and uh, all of that is because of things that Hiles had conditioned him with over the years. So, so how does Hiles react to the ultimatum? This conversation put everyone involved in a deadlock that would last for well over a decade, actually 14 years, I think. Victor refused to be run out of town or kept away from his children. Hiles and Jenny refused to stop doing whatever the f*** it was that they were doing. Jenny wanted a divorce. She did not want to live in the house with Victor anymore. But they all knew 
if Jenny got a divorce <clears throat> and she couldn't prove scriptural grounds for her divorce, then Hiles would look bad. She would have to step down from her position on his staff, which would mean that they didn't have day-to-day -day access to each other. And if Hiles was able to get rid of Beverly, he still wouldn't be able to marry her because she was divorced without scriptural reasons. Jenny didn't have those scriptural reasons for divorce unless Vic cheated on her and he did not cheat on her. And he also said, if you claim that I cheated on you, I'll publish the letters. So it's uh, like a checkmate situation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know like the proper, in, there's a chess term and I can't remember it oh, right it's now. it's a stalemate. Stalemate, is that what it is? Yeah, it's a stalemate. So everybody is stuck doing pretty much exactly what they're doing until at least one out of three of these people are ready to blow their life up. And that's how the plan was made. A separate living space was added to the Nistrick house at Hiles' expense and a schedule was set up where he had to come home at certain times every night. And the only time Vic and Jenny would ever be in the same room or speak directly to each other was one hour every Christmas morning so that their children could open presents with both parents. Wow. That's and this went on for so... like 14 years. I like, I don't understand why Vic wouldn't just say, F it, I'm going to publish the letters and then I guess divorce his wife file for divorce. I don't know, man, this is, this is so wild. And like, I guess, would there be custody issues or? Yeah. So a couple reasons. Um, I talked about how Vic thought that if he destroyed Hiles ministry, he'd be responsible to God for that. Like, even if Hiles is a bad guy, God is still using him. So if I mess with God's plan in this, then I'm going to be held responsible by God. So there was that. But also this uh, is like 19 control. Yeah, but also this is like 1969 and Vic loved his kids. And dads didn't often get custody of kids back then the way I understand it. I could be incorrect about that. The what I do know is that Hiles could afford a ton of lawyers and Vic couldn't. And I mean the the lawyers would probably be al also able to find the woman that Vic Nishchik sexually harassed at his work and then get her to testify against him. I mean, he didn't even sexually harass her. He very awkwardly lied and told her that he was in love with her <laughs> because Hiles made him do it. Yeah, but he was like her boss. Right. So. And like, that's not appropriate, but I don't blame him necessarily because Hiles straight up told him to do it. Um, yeah. But I, I, I have a hard time blaming him for that, knowing like the extent of mind control that he was under. And also like on this, on the scale of sexual harassment, that is bad and inappropriate and you shouldn't do it. But I just find it so funny that Jack Hiles, Hiles like response to that was, man, you've got no Riz. No wonder your wife hates you. <laughs> I know yeah. the, the whole thing, the whole thing is messed up, but the, the whole reason that Hiles had him sexually harass a woman at his work is so that he could use it against him in any future court cases. So it, the whole thing is like, like I said earlier, it's a, a series of failed setups. On page 74, Nischik says that Hiles confided to him that he had become sexually impotent due to the frequency of his travels and the jet lag. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's a thing. Wait, so Hiles, jet ad lag? Hiles admitted that to another person? Yeah, I, I don't quite know what to make of this because I've never heard the jet lag reasoning before. I mean, like if you're tired, that definitely can have an effect. No, like, sure. no, like, but also like he's in Indiana. 
So the jet lag is only ever like he's not like two hours. <laughs> yeah, it's if, if he's going to California, it's two hours one way. If he's going to like Florida, it's one hour the other way. Indiana's uh, 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 central, right? Uh, parts of Indiana are in central and parts are in eastern. Okay, so it's three hours max. I don't get it. I'm thinking like, I mean, being tired can yeah, definitely it, have an effect. But like, sure. I mean, or if like, if your head isn't in the game, if you're nervous, or if you you have like outside issues affecting your mental health, that can definitely have an effect. Yeah, absolutely. I totally understand that like a one-off incident of being tired can just kind of temporarily put a stop to things. Hiles is framing this though as a permanent state because of occasional jet lag. And that's what doesn't compute to me, like with my very limited observational experience. Well, Hiles claims that he only sleeps four hours a night. So if you're only sleeping four hours a night, then that'll do it to you. Yeah, but that's not jet lag related. No, but I that's think maybe related. he like lumped the jet lag into that. I don't know. But like, I mean, Hiles, Hiles suffer from heart disease, right? Mm hmm. That's what that's more along the line that I'm thinking. Right. This is in the 70s. Hiles was born in 1926. So at the time of this story, he's in his late 40s or early 50s. He did have heart problems show up later in life. I would think I would think this would that was actually the problem. And for some reason, he wanted to have a martyr complex and say it was because of the jet lag, because I give myself for the future of America and the future of fundamentalism. See where I'm going? Yeah. Yeah. And also maybe he wouldn't want to admit that um eating like a fundamentalist uh is not necessarily the most healthy thing in the world because that's kind of antithetical to their whole thing is that this is the best way to live your life. Also Right, and the also like he would have like in his schedule, if he was telling the truth about his busy schedule, he would never have time to go take a walk around the block or swim some laps in a pool or something play golf right or play golf but like suffering from serious erectile dysfunction before your 50s is a huge indicator of risk of heart disease because like Vi viagra wasn't made available to like late 80s early 90s right that wasn't like so, I don't know. so yeah so there wasn't the same level of like ed treatments that were available at the time either i don't know i think that's like huh th this is sus this is i i hmm. yeah this this claim is interesting so the other option that i see is that hiles is using a cult tactic here which i think is maybe even more likely so hiles is revealing something that is societally coded as being incredibly embarrassing about himself of course, from our perspective, we know that societal shame for somebody's body not working the way that they want it to is not warranted. Yeah, but this is fundamentalism and it's hyper-masculinity and so, you know. Right. And that's something that a lot of people would feel shame over even though they don't, even though they don't need to because there's just so much societal conditioning. When you reveal something that is embarrassing about yourself, it's practically a guarantee that the other person will believe you because why would why would this person be telling me this if it wasn't true so this chick is almost guaranteed to believe and therefore be assured that hiles is not having sex with his wife if hiles isn't having sex with jenny then why would he need to steal her away from vic see that's the thing i don't think hiles I... 
I think it's possible that Hiles never intended to steal her away from Vic, away being the important word in that sentence. I think he just wanted her devotion and adoration and attention all of the time. But Jenny, being a cult member and way too devoted and way too adoring to Jack Hiles, actually kind of fell in love with him as well, and she couldn't see her husband that way anymore, and then Hiles was in a situation that snowballed out of control, and instead of act with any ethics, he just went with it. Kind of like Bill Gothard, with, uh, where, where he would carry on these sorts of relationships with women and like get like sexually involved with them up get to the handsy, point. Yeah, handsy and sexually involved and weird and creepy. And playing footsie and just like... Mm -hmm. And making them very uncomfortable. A quick trigger warning for discussion of sexual assault. But I think I have... I don't even know if I've found... I believe I have read one story of a teenage girl who said that Gothard raped her. And there are close to 50 stories where he didn't. So I don't Mm. think... The so it it's the 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 sex wasn't the point, the intimidation, the control, and the power was the point. Yeah, and we also might get new information about this in a couple of days with the uh, the Duggar's yeah, doc. I'm that's so coming excited. Out. Yeah. Um, I I see this as different from whatever the Hiles Nischick thing was. This is still an inappropriate power balance relationship because Jenny is an employee. But I see this as less of a predatory sexual thing and more of a emotion. I think people like who use therapy talk and people who are on like therapy Twitter would call this emotional vampire stuff. Yeah. Like he needed her emotionally and then maybe that became sexual as opposed to the other way around. That sounds interesting. That that sounds because like I do think that you're right that Hiles probably didn't actually suffer from ED, or if he did, he wanted to use that as a, a thing to his advantage to really assure Nischik that nothing nefarious was going on by revealing to him something that he would never admit otherwise. That makes sense to me. That's my that's my theory. It's so it's totally possible he just made it up because he knew that Nischik would believe him because of the nature of this disclosure that he was making. He also knew that Nischik was far too loyal to ever tell anyone until he wrote his tell-all book, which was actually a (laughs) tell-all. So Nischik talks about um, his scheduling and being called into Hiles' office so that Hiles could tell him that Jenny needs him to clear out of the bathroom 15 minutes earlier in the morning. Like, he, it was that regimented. (sighs) Hiles also told Nischik that other couples in the church had similar arrangements where they appeared to be married but effectively had no contact with each other. Was Hiles sleeping with the wives of those couples too? That's not Nischik's implication in the book. Um, The implication is, or what he says is, that there are other married couples who completely hate each other and they let Hiles micromanage their wives so that they can appear to be married for the sake of the ministry but not have anything to do with each other in real life. Frankly, knowing how much time Hiles spent with Jenny Nischik, I don't see how he would possibly have any time for any other mistresses. 
That's true, but I also do think that I, I could definitely see Jack Hiles micromanaging other people's marriages it's just as like a regular thing that he does. I do think he it's did like that. Cult leader thing. It's like it's the natural extension of asserting control over somebody's sexuality. And the, the IFB doesn't just like when we think of control of people's sexuality in the IFB, we think of purity culture and don't touch until you're married, don't kiss until you're married, all of that sort of thing. And that is obviously a way that the IFB asserts control over your sexuality. But there are so many other facets to that. Specific rules about birth control are controlling of people's sexuality, um, approved do do try this or don't try this in your sex life with your husband that is asserting control over people's sexuality and i feel like micromanaging micromanaging marriages is a natural extension of that the thing that i do think about this is that this is the same fundamentalism that wants to make no fault divorce illegal that's like that that says that no fault divorce is the worst thing to ever happen when clearly if there was no fault divorce then this whole situation could have easily been avoided this is just uh, man Nischik says that he visited a psychiatrist in the early days of the new arrangement in their house and the team of uh, clinicians that he saw were able to be helpful in showing him how Heil's control was inappropriate and they really planted the seeds for him to leave like 15 years later. Sidebar, because I know we have therapist listeners. I hope this gives you hope because they were not able to get him out of a high control group at that time, but they did help and he did eventually escape. The psychiatrist also told him that he should get a hotel in Chicago and see a sex worker to help him deal with all of this. Mm. Nischik really didn't like that suggestion because of his religious beliefs, so that suggestion soured him on other good advice from the psychiatrist. He did later come to realize that their other advice was sound, even though he didn't like that particular piece of advice. Um, sidebar for therapists, <laughs> this is why therapists that are dealing with people who are in high control groups or leaving high control groups really need to have cultural competency in the practices of these groups. Um, and that's something that I would like to see more of, especially as we have massive numbers of people leaving fundamentalism and other high control groups. Also, I think that suggesting that your client patronize a sex worker is somewhat sus considering this, that this was like the 1970s. And I don't think there was much of a way to do that in an ethical way at that time and not like be supporting human trafficking you know what i'm saying like aside from the yeah. fact that this dude is like a devout christian and he's like hey you're a devout christian you should go see a sex worker obviously that's not gonna fly yeah like, that was just... a, a possibly a misstep on on this on the part of the psychiatrist there then again we do know that not all psychiatrists can be are, are like the best and most ethical people because I'm I'm remembering the dude from Michelle Remembers mm -hmm. that married his client and implanted false memories of in that her. That makes being, me so mad. Yeah, that was crazy. I'm Started moving, the satanic panic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm moving on to the founding of Hiles Anderson and the I gave it all story. This is this is something. 
Nischik talks about this story from another perspective. Hiles loved to brag about how the ladies of the church put their wedding rings and engagement rings in the offering plate, and that's what raised the money for Hiles Anderson. And it's true that that did happen, but Nischik tells us that Hiles left out a crucial detail. The offerings and the I gave it all and the I put my wedding ring in the offering plate was not nearly enough money to purchase Hiles Anderson College. Nischik says that he personally secured the final loan that gave them enough money. Interesting. So the wedding rings weren't actually the thing that did it. It was just that was just like a flex for Jack Howes, just like about power for him. Well, I mean, he did need the money that those rings raised. But when he but he retconned the story to say it was your wedding ring that allowed us to buy this place when that was not true at all. And that's like a sunk cost fallacy for sure. Oh my God. That's like the biggest sunk cost. I hate that story because my like my wedding ring from Jonathan was from Amazon uh, because we eloped and we thought we'd replace them later and we still haven't. But I have my grandmother's 19, like gorgeous 1950s wedding band. And just thinking about her ever being parted from that or me ever being parted from that is is unthinkable for me. Uh, speaking of stories that Hiles retconned, Nischik takes issue with his story about his alcoholic father. So Hiles always said his dad was the town drunk. He left his mother alone with two kids. He insulted and even hit Hiles when he told his dad that he was going to be a preacher. There's this whole lore that Hiles built around himself and his dad and making his dad a villain in his story. Nischik said that people have looked into this and everyone else in town said, Willis Hiles, he didn't have a drinking problem at all. Nischik believed that Hiles' dad left the family because Hiles' mom was too protective of her son and neglected their relationship, and that Hiles felt guilty about that because he felt like he was the person who broke up his family, and he needed to make his mother a saintly figure, not somebody who had a broken marriage because of maybe mistakes that she had made. So he lied about this whole thing and twisted the story to make it the outcome that he needed. Uh, so speaking of speaking of the Hiles family, <laughs> Nistic writes at length about his issues with Dave Hiles. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nistic had a large group of bus route teenage boys that he was mentoring and having really good results with and just feeling like he was really building a relationship. And in the end, his entire group dropped out of church permanently, and he blamed Dave's hypocrisy and his habit of verbally abusing the church youth group, which will do it. Yeah. Nistrick also talks about a campground that First Baptist Church of Hammond purchased for the purpose of having Christian summer camps for bus kids. He says that Dave Hiles would take group groups of teens down there for camps and just absolute debauchery oh, no. would happen. Yeah, like boys raiding the girls' dorms at night, and when they left, there would be human waste smeared on the walls and mattresses slashed. And the boys' dorm that was responsible for all that was always the dorm that Dave was in charge of chaperoning. That's on brand. Yeah. That's mm. uh, just... Ugh. Hashtag arrest Dave Hiles. Um, Dude, David, David Hiles is, is such a predator and such a criminal. He's... People who wrote the Amazon documentary 
give us a call yes if you've been involved with the amazon documentary please let us like if we could do a whole docu-series on the hiles dynasty just give me the producer's number i'll make it happen so the end of this book is Vic talking about how he got free from the tangled mess that Jock Hiles had made of his life. Moody Bible Institute wanted Nischik to come work for them in the accounting department. He had turned them down a few times, but over time, their kind and Christian treatment of him really softened his heart, and he started to see that there was a Christian world outside the IFB where his beliefs were honored and he was treated nicely, even by other Christians who had different theological beliefs than he did. He talks about his department head being a Presbyterian lady, and how they would just joke together about theology, like kind of rib each other about it. And it was funny and lighthearted. Kind of like how we do on yes. this show. And he experienced that for the first time. And this really started to enlighten him. The position at Moody also led him to fully standing up to Hiles for the first time. There was a staff banquet at Moody, and he was expected to attend with his wife. So he called Hiles and he said, Jenny's coming with me to this banquet. And Hiles said, no, it's pastor school week. She's got to work. And this chick put her, put his foot down. You are her boss. You control her. You tell her what to do. And I'm telling you that she is coming to this event. So on one hand, I love the standing up to Hiles, but on the other hand, I don't love the she's my wife and I tell her what to do aspect of it. Yeah. So no, I'm. I'm with you. I still think that the the responsibility of that, like much like much like the sexual harassment, the responsibility of that weighs a lot more heavily on Hiles than on Nischik. Because in a in a normal world with equal spouses who are reasonable people, one spouse says to the other, "Hey, I have this work event, and I really need you to be there for PR and to interact with my coworkers. Like this is important to me." And then their spouse just does it. <laughs> they show up, they dress nice, they behave themselves nicely with their spouse's coworkers, whether they want to or not. Unless there's a real medical reason or something serious that prevents them from doing so. Regardless of the genders of either spouse, when your spouse says, I have this thing and you really need to come with me. I have a family wedding and I really need you to be there and be nice to my great aunt Myrtle. You just do it, right? Even if she says that you have skinny ankles uh, and- Right, like you yeah. just, <laughs> this is just like <laughs> a thing that is part of the expectations of many people in healthy marriages. <laughs> if your spouse needs you to do something, you'll just, do it unless there's any kind of serious reason that you can't. And if there's a serious reason that you can't, your spouse just understands that and is nice to you. So I don't think this is like misogyny for misogyny's sake. I agree with you that, you know, she's my wife and I tell her what to do is not great. Mm, I, I feel like this, the root problem is Hiles controlling this man's wife's schedule and completely tearing their marriage to pieces to the point where a married man cannot ask his spouse, hey, can you come to this event with me, please? There, there's a, This is a lot more complicated than I tell my wife what to do and she does it. So as time goes on, being at Moody and hearing other doctrinal perspectives, Nischik started to realize that not only was Hiles a hypocrite as the 
a psychiatrist had pointed out to him many years previous, but he was also not preaching from the Bible. He was preaching his opinion and he was preaching control. I think earlier in all of this, Nischik felt like Hiles was a great man of God who had a private sin, but if I expose this sin, it'll do more harm than good to the people of God who follow Hiles. And in the early 80s, that spell was finally broken. So that's really interesting. Because when we talked about deprogramming like two years ago, I think one of the aspects that we harped on was how important it is to normalize relations because breaking through that in-group, out-group absolute is just one of the most important things that you can do. And like, you can't berate people into changing. You can only put it in front of their eyes and they have to make the choice whether or not they want to see it. So does Nishchik talk about what happened when he finally came forward with a story? Um, so after their kids were out of the house, Nischik made a real effort to win his wife back. I am kind of stunned by that. I wouldn't have done that. I don't know that I would have done that either. Believe it or not, he was actually making progress and he got her to speak to him and have dinner together once a week, which seems like incredible progress for after not speaking for 15 years. So part of this was a religious thing like he really did not want to divorce for religious reasons i think it shows a lot of integrity to care and to try even if i maybe would have been like dude don't even try <laughs> like i think that i think that shows yeah. some character whether or not i would have told him to do it oh yeah yeah this isn't something that you do just because you're doing your due diligence this is something that you only do when you genuinely really do care about somebody and as part of this process, Nischik, like as they were starting to sort of get back on speaking terms, Nischik de delivered a list of demands to Jack Hiles. Um, these demands included board up the office door between your office and hers. Do not see her alone in your office or alone in her office. Do not have lunch with her. Don't ride in a car alone with her. In other words, follow your own rules that you expect everybody else to follow. Of course, Hiles refused, and his reasoning for refusing was, well, if I give in to your demands, then that's like admitting guilt, and I am the leader, and I'm responsible to no one, and I'm not going to admit guilt because I haven't done anything wrong, and you can't tell me what to do. That's unsurprising, but it's also very hypocritical. Like, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's standards for thee, but not for me. The situation at that point persisted for almost two more years, from 1985 to 1986. During this time, Jenny filed for divorce again, and the Nischicks were officially divorced. Um, but Victor kept all of his positions at the church, including his seat on the deacon board. So Nischicks' reasoning was basically, you know what, after all of this, I've put 20 years into this. I have spent much of my adult life being tortured and jerked around by these people. Uh, they're not going to get to just run me out of this church that I helped build. I am not just going to leave out of shame. They are going to have to kick me out. So this is almost him looking for revenge in like an extremely fundy Christian kind of way. Just kind of trying to get, I think, some of his agency back. Uh, finally, it came up in a fateful deacons meeting in November 1985 when one of the other deacons said, well, we don't allow divorced men to be deacons. That's in the church bylaws, and we all know that there is a divorced man on this deacon board, and I think we ought to do something about it. Hiles, in the deacon meeting, shot this guy down. 
he said, well, all kind of you deacons do all kinds of sins. And if we took all the sinners off this deacon board, we'd have no deacons left. So basically deal with it. Well, if you took all the sinners off the deacon board, you wouldn't have a pastor either. Right. Well, <sighs> I want to quote what happened next when Vic got up to speak, because this is this is fantastic. So this is Victor speaking, and I'll try to make sure you can tell who's speaking in the text here. In case there are doubts in anybody's mind as to who the discussion is all about, I am the man being discussed. The time has come for me to make my position known. Hold it, Vic. Hiles was standing, facing the men. Be careful what you say. You are holding the future of America in your hands. I totally ignored that warning. I want the board to know the truth. Yes, I am divorced. Jenny divorced me by orders from our pastor. The only way you will get rid of me is to bring the matter on the floor for discussion and vote me out. I will not resign under any circumstances. The principal reason is that I am scripturally commanded to inform you that I am holding Jack Hiles personally responsible for the destruction of my marital home. I have told him privately and I am telling you publicly for the first time that he tampered with my wife, stole her affection. Hiles interrupts. Vic, that is not true. You are trying to destroy fundamentalism. And Vic responds, yes, it is true, preacher. Everyone sat in stony silence. Wow. I just thought the that was guilt trip from Hiles, the drama. Man. Oh my gosh. Um, You're trying to destroy fundamentalism. That's man, that's the pivot. That scene in like an HBO Max dot like series. HBO Max get at us as soon as the writer strike is over. Yes. <laughs> um <laughs> So Vic then tried, he had like prepared a three-page statement on everything that had happened, which he evidently was just carrying around in his pocket to every deacon's meeting waiting for this to happen, which is extremely accountant-y of him, but also something that I would do and I respect it. But he was, so he tried to read his statement, but he was shouted down by the other deacons, many of whom he points out in this chapter, depended on Hiles for their income one way or the other. Did they ask him for the evidence? Nope. He had it with him, and they wouldn't let him present it. Although, in the next few months after this altercation, a third of the deacon board resigned. Um, so, clearly, there were quite a few people who did agree with him. Somebody probably asked about that, and they're just like, well, sometimes they disappear into the office, and you can't get a hold of him for, I don't know, a half hour. <laughs> or Jenny, you couldn't get a hold of her for a half hour when her, her kid broke her arm at school. Right. Nistic said that he wouldn't leave until he was formally kicked out, which is pretty badass. So kicking him out formally, disfellowshipping somebody uh, formally from an IFB church is actually pretty complicated and requires bringing it, bringing the matter and the reasons for kicking somebody out before the entire church membership. So they couldn't formally kick him out without acknowledging that something happened. He ended up sticking around for two more years. So this is now four what? years. <laughs> After his 14 years of like not being able to speak to his wife at all, four more years, but he stuck He's... it out to get his last word. 
He stayed a member of this. I guess he, they couldn't kick him off the deacon board. They couldn't kick him off the deacon board. They had to live with it for four more years. That's um, and I that is petty revenge, wild. and I love it. That's like malicious compliance, and I yes. dig it. Just being um, able to just like show up to the deacons meeting and being like, "Hey, point of order, I'd like to request that Jack Hiles stop my wife." Like at every deacon's board meeting, that's what I would do. Yeah, I mean, like, he's sitting in the deacon board meeting, like I don't want to be here. You don't want me here, but I'm not leaving, so you got to deal with me. In May 1988, he brought again this matter of accusing Hiles of having had an affair with his now ex-wife and an accusation of Hiles mismanaging funds donated specifically for the bus ministry with good financial evidence to the deacon board where he was again shouted down by Hiles and his supporters. Hiles said that if the deacon board audited the financial out, so one deacon stood up and said, well, if he's making an accusation, we should just do an audit of this funds and then we can prove him wrong. And Hiles said, if you audit this, I will resign. Uh. <laughs> so clearly he did embezzle about $250,000. Oh, Hiles said, if you, if you audit this, I quit. And then after that meeting, Nischik felt like he had made his point and he walked out the back door of First Baptist Church of Hammond and never went back. That's some king sh Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not like, not like I don't want to make him like this perfect hero because, you know, we have a, a, a habit of idolizing people after they're dead and that's not really helpful when we can see people. It's I think it's a lot more helpful when we can see people with a little bit more nuance than that. But that was pretty great. This this part of the story, it, yeah, King for sure. Yeah, but so but he didn't go public with the story until that uh, biblical evangelist letter was published. Right. So the biblical evangelist story came out in 1989, and then he published this book in 1990 at around the same time as Fundamental Seduction to to just tell his side of the story. And then, as far as I know, he kind of walked away from it all lived a quiet life, remarried to a lady who I have not met, but I know people who have met her and they all say that she's lovely. He maintained a close relationship with his kids until his death and he generally had a nice life. Good for him. Yeah. Also, hell of a press tour for this book. <laughs> like, th this is like the fundy version of the Don't Worry Darling press tour. Yes. <laughs> like, the, the, the no press is bad press press yes. tour. I don't know. Also, he went on Maury Povich to tell this story. And there's the video of Vic Nischik telling the story to Maury Povich. And then Maury like goes and talks to Jack Hiles. Yes. To like get his side of the story. It's ludicrous. Yes. Highly recommend that you watch this, the, the, the Maury Povich video, if you get the chance. So those are, yeah, the, that, and then also their appearance on a current affair, which is a different yeah. TV show evidently those are that that's a, a good sample i think of the new revelations from this book i want to close out this episode by talking a little bit about how to combat self-brainwashing in the beginning of the episode i talked about my like how i was conditioned to think about this story and, and the way that i was told this story and why this book was so absolutely crucial for me to get my hands on i've called this cult concept, self-brainwashing or self-gaslighting, and this is something that comes up over and over again when I talk about cult control. We all know that cult members 
may be directed to wear certain clothes or do certain things or not do certain things. But thought control and emotion control are so much harder to see from an outside perspective. Cults may tell members that certain thoughts or certain emotions are unacceptable or sinful, and then they teach you methods to cleanse yourself from these thoughts or emotions and methods to avoid those thoughts and emotions in the future. It's really important to remember that just like behavior control, which is a lot more obvious, thought control does not in and of itself make a cult. Your job might require you to wear a uniform or dress in a specific way, like business casual or business formal. That doesn't mean your job is a cult, right? <laughs> they practice behavior control, but that doesn't mean that they are a cult. That also doesn't mean that a job or a company cannot be a cult. <clears throat> LuLaRoe, for example. Thought control is something that nearly everybody practices. And just like behavior control, it does not make a cult in and of itself. A lot of people like me may practice thought control on purpose through meditation or visualization techniques or anti-anxiety techniques. Like I have anxiety and I also have intrusive thoughts. That's something that I deal with in my constellation of mental health symptoms and I don't know, could do the PTSD or something else. I don't know. But I've learned ways to stop thinking about them when they happen so that I can feel in control in my brain. I can think about what I want to and need to think about. Cognitive behavioral therapy is one of those therapy modalities that is awful for some people and great for other people. I'm one of the people that it works really well for and cognitive behavioral therapy has a ton in common with self-brainwashing. CBT therapy is basically on-purpose, consensual, and for good reason, self-brainwashing. So all of that disclaimer to say, people who are involved with cults and high control groups are at extremely high risk for being gaslit or brainwashed by other people, but they're also at risk for being taught without their knowledge and without their consent to gaslight and brainwash themselves. Throughout this book, Nischik describes this kind of self-brainwashing, like all of the different ways that he rationalized what was going on between Hiles and his wife. And then when he couldn't rationalize their relationship anymore, he still believed that covering for Hiles was somehow the right thing to do. And he writes about how seeing another perspective and gathering physical evidence like their love letters helped him break free. Interestingly, this is one of the real-world strategies that we have to combat self-brainwashing or to combat gaslighting by other people. Writing journals is particularly helpful for people who are experiencing gaslighting because if they have an experience or feel a feeling and they write it down and then later the person who's gaslighting them tries to say that didn't happen or you're remembering it wrong or you didn't feel that way, they can go back to what they wrote and see that they did, in fact, experience that or feel that way or remember it that way. And that's part, this evidence gathering to combat either gaslighting from other people or self-brainwashing that comes from yourself because other people have taught you to do it. Gathering evidence is something that has really helped me and been a crucial part of my journey of getting to the truth of all of this. And that's why I needed to get my hands on this book. This part of IFB history wasn't something that I experienced, but as I was explaining up at the top of the episode, this was something that shaped my life and was part of my understanding of the world from a very young age. 
So there's a lot of things about this story that I will never truly have the answer to. Obviously, I metaphorically give my right arm for those love letters, just like I would the Dave Hyle suitcase. Except that I'd actually want to read these letters. Dave Hyle's suitcase would just go straight to the FBI because I might get arrested for opening it. But jokes aside, this book by Vic Nischik is the second best thing to actually being able to see Jack and Jenny's love letters. Jack Heil says one thing happened. Vic Nischik says another thing happened. And the physical evidence to be had is slim to none. So who do we believe? And how do I have any degree of confidence about what the truth of this story might be? Hiles had everything to gain from telling people that this never happened. His million-dollar ministry, his career, and the adulation of literal thousands of people are some of the things that he had to lose if people believed this story. Nischik, on the other hand, had nothing to gain. The copy of this book that I have was dead stock. I've heard that the first pressing was between 10 and 20,000 copies, and they didn't even sell out, which I say with absolute certainty because I got this book from Deadstock because it had been in somebody's attic for nearly 30 years, for over 30 years, in the box that it was shipped from the publisher in. Don't go thinking that, that Nischik made a bunch of money on selling this book. Not only did Nischik have nothing to gain from telling this story, he has something that Hiles doesn't. He has witnesses. Judy Nischik Johnson, his daughter, has come out publicly affirming every part of her dad's story that she was witness to. Paula Hiles has also confirmed other parts of this story, as has Linda Murphy. These witnesses provide evidence, and evidence is one powerful tool to help people break free from gaslighting, from cult control, from self-brainwashing. And maybe it was my obsession with this book, with finding this book, that led me to keep so many little pieces of ephemera from my Hiles Anderson days, from my Pensacola days, from like from living through the Scop arrest. Like I played on the Scop episodes of the first Family of Fundamentalism series, the audio recording of the students at Hiles Anderson being informed that Scop had been arrested. Why did I make that recording? Why did I keep that recording for so long? I think part of that was because of how obsessed I was with finding this book. I think this book helped teach me the power of evidence. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble now. I just, I want, I want our audience to understand the importance of this book for me. Because yes, we all like a juicy scandal between a cult leader and his secretary, and I'm not ashamed of saying that, and I hope you're not ashamed of wanting to hear about it, because it is interesting and it appeals to our humanity, and a lot of us think it's fun. And I don't want you to be ashamed of, <laughs> of wanting the juicy scandal, but I also want you to understand the importance of this book in my life and what it means to me and how, how I personally balance the juicy scandal with what this book teaches me about the importance of evidence. You know, the one thing that I... And I hope I, hope I was able to express that today. 
you know the one thing that i do remember because i did go back and re like cut and remaster a lot of those oh, right. old, early episodes about six months ago the one thing that i did forget after doing this show for so long was when we first did those first two parts of the first family of fundamentalism your whole take was well hiles wasn't that bad a guy he just got like kind of in over his head and 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 the power got to him i know and, and that's so embarrassing now <laughs> yeah and and then and then we read the the five chapters from linda uh hiles murphy's book and we're just like oh no this guy was a a, a horrible man and it really like had a massive emotional effect on you when you yes. found that out and it really like I, rem like I remember like when i read that i called my dad just bawling when i read linda's book um the unreleased yeah. chapters from her book um i was also very early in my pregnancy with chuck and i didn't know it yet <laughs> so that probably affected like i remember the first time we sat down to record the second first family of fundamentalism episode i had to cancel recording that day and try it again the next day do you remember that i do remember that now because that i was so up. like we tried to record and i was so emotionally overwhelmed i couldn't quit crying on mic yeah and i was just like whatever i'll go edit part one yeah um, and so this yeah. has been this has been a really an emotional journey for me and i want to like, I'm so glad that our audience gets to see me make that emotional journey from like, oh, he's not such a bad guy to like, oh, he was straight up evil. And like now to having a more psychological view of it. I, I think that's that's not a journey that I want to obscure from our audience, even though it is embarrassing. <laughs> some of the things that I said in those really early episodes, I want I want people to be able to see that journey. That's really cool. That's kind of what we kinda, do here on the show. I mean, isn't it kind of similar to the journey that Vic took in this book, too? Yeah, it is a triumphant story, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he finally grows a spine, and he really and he really stands up for himself. Thank you guys for tuning into this show. Thank you guys for tuning into this episode. Next week, we have uh, is is our first episode of Pride Month, so we have a deep dive into the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, the the hate group, the hate church. Fred Phelps was the boss. Fred Phelps built it up, um, located in Kansas. They're not great, and we've got a deep dive into them. We've also got next week, you're ready for it, we're ready for it, our episode reviewing Shiny Happy People, the documentary series on Amazon Prime that is all about the Duggars and the IBLP um, and we've got a special surprise for that episode coming up. That's really exciting. Super pumped on that. That's also going to come out next week, probably Thursday or Friday. And then the Monday after that, we have an interview with Pastor Noah Hepler, who, if you watch Queer Eye, as we do, you will remember him from season five, episode one, uh, titled Preaching Out Loud. Uh, and he is a, a, a pastor who is raised in fundamentalism. And he is a gay man and he left fundamentalism and now he runs a queer affirming ministry in Philadelphia. And we're really excited to have him on and, and have, and talk to him as a guest. So those are the next three episodes that we've got coming up. We're really excited for that. I love talking affirming theology and also I am really excited to get my bacon number with Jonathan Van Ness to two. Oh, really? Yeah. To so two. like, you Who know, did like you six, have before? No, like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Like, 
how how many connections does it take you to get to there was also this thing that went around on twitter like how many handshakes would it take you to get to queen elizabeth it, 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 i feel like you get bonus jvn points not just because pastor noah had like met jonathan van ness pastor noah had his eyebrows done by jonathan van ness that is it is a great honor to meet someone who has had his eyebrows done by by jonathan van ness yeah, for yeah. sure so we're we're going to to have him on um really exciting really glad that he agreed to come on the show and we're it's it's going to be a good a good month of content from us we've got other fun stuff coming up um if you like our show if you're a fan of our show make sure that you uh you can subscribe to our patreon uh where we will come out with all of our episodes a day early and also, uh, the version that's on the Patreon will be extended, so it'll be longer than the normal episode, and it will be uncensored, and it won't have any advertisements in it. And you can find that on patreon.com slash leavingedenpodcast. So we are selling Pride merch. Um, the proceeds from all of our Pride merch go to um, a good cause, an LGBTQ-friendly charity. We're going to announce what that is in the coming weeks. And you can also uh, join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus, and our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. You can follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. It is at Leaving Eden Podcast. On Twitter, it is at Leaving Eden Pod. Sadie, your socials. Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at Hell yeah Sadie, on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on, I guess the only social media I ever use anymore is Instagram. So follow me on Instagram at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. No